Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. One of the questions I get from time to time is, if you go to Disney a lot, like I do, what do you do for summer vacation? And I've told you in the past that we try to plan a vacation that's somewhere farther away. We try to go somewhere and just explore and enjoy and do something different. And this year, we decided to go up to Canada. We visited the provinces of Ontario and also Quebec, and we went around and saw a couple of cities. We went to Toronto and Ottawa and uh, Quebec City and Montreal, and it was a great time. It was a lot of fun. We had, we had so much fun just t- tooling around and checking out different things and exploring and having some fun and trying to speak French and do some things. And it was interesting as we were there because I had this really weird sort of Disney connection that I was talking about with my kids. So we're, we're walking along and like everything came back to Disney somehow. It's a strange thing that happens when you're sort of a Disney fan. You start to look through the lens of Disney, especially when you're kind of looking at Disney's history. There's this lens that you look through to look at different things around. And you wonder sometimes, am I really looking at Disney or am I looking at the real world? And it kind of starts off with, how does Disney influence other things? So, for example, you go into a museum and the museum's today that you go into that are more modern or have been set up more in a more modern sense have more interactive type displays they have more things that are set up where you're actually telling a story and you're actually putting together pieces so there was one museum we were into and went into in toronto where there was like this uh, display of different period pieces that were put together to make a room basically so you were walking into someone's room in a house where they had all the furniture in there and they had other things in there that made you feel like you were actually in their house rather than one piece of furniture or one thing it was kind of telling a story of what life would be like and it had that feeling like it was disney influenced in some way just sort of the way they set it up there was another museum we went into where they were using the uh, pepper's ghost effect So they had a piece of glass up on the wall, and all of a sudden, there was uh, horses going across uh, the bridge that was there. And it's like, hey, that's pretty clever. That's very smart the way they did that. It's good use of the effect. So it looked like they were there, but they really weren't there. And there was another one where there was people walking along, and it was shadow play that they made them walk along. And it was very sort of Disney-influenced. Now, would they have come up with this without Disney having influenced society? Who knows? But I had never seen that in other museum-type places that I'd been in, and that was kind of cool. It was just kind of neat to see sort of this influence and sort of the, the way that Disney came together. And the funny thing was, a lot of places we went into that were more attraction-oriented, and we didn't go to any theme parks or anything, certainly, but the attraction-oriented things, you'd go in, you'd wait in line for a little while, and you'd see the thing you wanted to see, and it would maybe be you know 20 minutes of line for a five-minute attraction, and you'd exit through a gift shop. And we were commenting on how Disney-like that really is, that it feels very much like Disney when you do things like that. So there was one day we did a very touristy thing, and that was to go to Niagara Falls. Now, Niagara Falls has the American side and the Canadian side. We decided since we were staying in Toronto, we'd take the train over and see the Canadian side. 
And it was an adventure to get there, and it was kind of fun, and it's got a certain charm to it and a certain beauty, but it is definitely a tourist attraction. In, in fact, if you look at the rankings of all the tourist attractions around the world, Niagara Falls ranks fifth with 22.5 million people that visit every year, where the Magic Kingdom is actually eighth with about 17.5 million people a year. So it's definitely a very large tourist attraction, and there were a lot of people there. And uh, we did the touristy things. We went around and we saw all these really cool things. We took the cruise that went up to the falls and you get soaking wet. You're wearing a poncho, but you still get soaking wet. We did the, uh, the fun things of going around and taking the little bus around to uh, different attractions that are there. We walked up the main uh, walkway there that's just by the falls in, on the Canada side. And it's very touristy. It's absolutely got a lot of tourist attractions there. It feels very much like Las Vegas or Atlantic City or something where you're walking along and it's just honky-tonk and there's all these things happening there. It was kind of fun. Uh, it was kind of interesting to see because you don't get to see that as much anymore. Uh, and we went along and just had a really good time. Now, one cool thing we did do was we took the uh, tour that went under the falls and there's this one place where there's some tunnels under the falls and it ends right at the falls and you're watching the falls fall behind you so in fact we were seeing the backside of water and i immediately thought of that when i was standing there hey it's the famous backside of water you know there's like i said there's a disney joke in everything as you walk along it was just really interesting to kind of kind of look at that so we went up to Ottawa, and uh, Ottawa was really, you know, it's just a, a really interesting city. They have some, some interesting locks and some other, other things going on there. They have a, uh, Ottawa's really an interesting city. Uh, during the wintertime, the, uh, the river that's there that runs along a, a main drag in Ottawa actually freezes over, and they have something called Winterlude, and uh, it's, it becomes the world's largest skating rink, outdoor skating rink. And it's a really remarkable thing. And I, I had trouble envisioning it because we were there in the summer. Now, the temperature was only in maybe the low 80s Fahrenheit. You know, it was like uh, maybe 19 degrees Celsius. And we're there. And it's hard to imagine it getting frozen over. You know, it's a, it's a river. And there were boats going on the river. And it was really interesting to think about. And I went and Googled pictures of it. And I talked to someone who had been there. And they were telling me all about it. And I was like, wow, that's really pretty amazing. But it's really pretty cool. And it's, when you look at the city, it's a really interesting thing. And we're, we're walking along... And it's uh, Ottawa, because it's the nation's capital, has some more touristy things that you can do. And there was one point we were standing there watching the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, at, uh, at their Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And there was a bunch of military people around and Canadian soldiers. And it was the weirdest thing because there was a bunch of people who were asking to take pictures with them. And I turned to my son and I said, you know, it's kind of like we're standing in line to see Mickey and Goofy in a way, you know, because people just are waiting in line to see them and uh, take a picture with them. So, of course, we did the touristy thing and did that, too. But it was kind of strange, you know, kind of looking at it that way because it felt very Disney-like in a way. Kind of interesting. Also in Ottawa, there's a, uh, the Hotel Laurent. The Hotel Laurent is one of the ones that was built by the uh, Canadian Pacific Railway that uh, was one of the luxury hotels that you would stop at as you went across from the eastern provinces of Canada all the way over to the west coast. So this is the one on which the Disney version of the hotel is based on. And when you look at it, the first thing I noticed when we walked up, I go, I turned to my son, I go, look, that's the Disney hotel right there. That's the one that you see in Epcot's Canada. And sure enough, you know, I, I pulled up the picture and we were looking at it and it's like, yeah, that's it. I mean, it, because that's the one it's based on. Now, there are others in other cities that we saw that are very similar in style and clearly same influences and same architectural styles, but this is the one that it's actually based on, so it was kind of neat to stand there and look at it for a minute. And uh, that's pretty cool, you know, when you stop and think about it. Again, that tie back to Epcot and that tie back to Disney, there's that, that linkage there. And I mentioned on the Canada podcast that I did some time ago 
that the British Unification Act is what brought together French-speaking and English-speaking Canada. And I talked about it in sort of a general sense, sort of a historical context, but when you're there and you're talking to people in both the English-speaking part and the French-speaking part, you get a slightly different perspective. They're telling you all about how their part of the world contributed more to Canada than the other part of the world. And you learn a little something extra that Ottawa is actually situated right on the border between where English-speaking Canada and French-speaking Canada are. Quebec is a French-speaking province, and Ontario is not. So it's, it's in Ontario right there at the river, and the river literally separates French-speaking and English-speaking Canada. Pretty cool. So when you're at Disney World and you walk along and you see you walk up the stairs, walking through the Epcot Canada Pavilion, look to your left and you see the English-speaking provinces represented, and on your right is the French-speaking provinces. And it's really cool to think about how that relates, because when you're there in Ottawa, you actually see it almost exactly the same way. We walked across the bridge between Ontario and Quebec, and as you're walking along the, along the bridge, it suddenly changes. It's not that it's so different. It's, there was this very subtle thing that was happening. As you're near the capital, Things are in French and in English because both are used in Canada. So you're, when you're in Ottawa, things are English first, French second. But as soon as you cross the bridge, it's French first, English second. And it's really kind of cool because there's this very interesting relationship that happens there with French-speaking Canada and English-speaking Canada. And by the way, we were there for the 150th anniversary of Canada. Now, the 150th is an interesting anniversary because it happens to be the anniversary of Canadian unification. So this British Unification Act that brought together French-speaking and English-speaking Canada is what is being celebrated at the 150th anniversary. Kind of a cool thing that we happen to be there for that and actually got to see some activities and fun things to kind of celebrate that unification. Now, everyone in Canada understands the unification and understands what it all means, but Canada has a very interesting and rich history and the relationship between French and British uh, history and things that go on there. And there's a lot of things that happen. And, you know, when you take the tours and you talk to people in both of the provinces and you, you know, do different things, you realize there's a lot more to history than we learn in U.S. textbooks. The French and the British had a lot more influence and were in, engaged in many more things than we ever really think about when we think about uh, U.S. history and British history and French history. And, of course, the French helped the U.S. and uh, the Americans in the uh, Revolutionary War. And their goal was to help drive out the British. They just finished up with the Seven Years' War with the British and had effectively lost. And they thought maybe they could get rid of the British and control the waterways between the uh, St. Lawrence River up on the northern part of the Great Lakes and the uh, Delta Valley down in, uh, in Louisiana where the Mississippi River starts. So they thought they could control the waterways, and by helping the Americans, they could actually drive out the British. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. When the Americans drove out the British, the British just regrouped and went back to Canada and tried to retake the, the waterways up there. And the Seven Years' War kind of worked out where they had to give up some of the, concede some things back to the British as well and some things to the Americans. And unfortunately, the Americans really didn't thank the uh, French in quite the right way. We went ahead and just tried to attack and take some of that waterways too. So very complicated and convoluted history, but it's interesting just to kind of take the perspective of what happened there and kind of look at it through a different lens. We look at it through a very US-centric lens, and it's interesting to hear people's perspective on what it was like and how American history figures in there. And if you look at the borders between Ontario and Quebec and where the United States is, especially up by Maine and uh, New Hampshire and Vermont, you realize that 
there's a lot more happening. And there's a, it's a very interesting border that was drawn out based on the uh, gains made during the war and some of the British unification and so forth. It's just really, it's really fascinating. So anyway, but that's, that's a really, uh, really interesting thing. So as we left Ottawa, we went down to a, an area that's uh, known as Ull. And uh, that area, it's H-U-L-L, so you might think of it as Hull, but it's a French word. So there's a park there. And uh, in that park, they had a number of topiaries on display representing the 150th anniversary. And these topiaries are on the order and of the size and scale that you might expect to see at Disney. Again, another connection where we're standing there looking at topiaries and I'm thinking, wow, this is just like the, you know, the Flower and Garden Festival or Food and Wine Festival at Epcot. You're seeing these wonderful topiaries that represent something. Now, maybe they're not, you know, they're not Mickey and Minnie, but they're certainly of that sort of style. And you're looking at them and you're like, wow, they did a really good job. And... It's amazing because you can realize you realize that they were influenced by a lot of things that you may have seen like Disney. Of course, one of the other things that we saw was um, there's uh, when we went up to Montreal, there's a number of things that happened up there that uh, directly relate back to Disney. And I'm going to come back to those in just a moment. But one of the things is Cirque du Soleil is based out of Montreal. So they had this event going on that was a Cirque street performance event thing. And they do these. Montreal is just amazing. They have these different events that go on throughout the year. And so every week there's something else. And this one was a Cirque Festival. And they had different performances, performance art happening right there on the streets. And you got to see some of these things that are just like you'd see at the Cirque du Soleil show, even like the one that you'd see La Nuba at, uh, at Disney. You know, some of these things that were going on were very similar. It's like, you know, people doing the same kinds of acts, you know, people doing balancing and juggling and all kinds of other things. And there was performance art going on. And again, if you go into walk on the main walk into Main Street or you walk into the Hollywood Studios or you walk somewhere else and you see all these street performers and people doing things and having interactive activities, that's what we were seeing. You know, above and beyond just the, the regular street performers that you see on any street corner. These were like amazing acts that were doing many more things. It was just it was an incredible thing and you know, kind of taking it to a new level. And amazingly, one of the really cool things we saw was over in Montreal, down by the old port. There was an international fireworks show going on, and on the week we happened to be there, it was the Italian group that was doing their fireworks, and there was like this 30-minute display of fireworks that were phenomenal. It really did rival Disney in terms of the scope and the scale of it, and it was just absolutely breathtaking and beautiful. I mean, you can tie it back to Disney and go, wow, you know, who does fireworks like that in the evening? Yes, it was a competition, but it was really, really cool. So again, tying things back to Disney and realizing there's so many things happening in the world that you can go, hey, that's just like Disney, because I've never seen fireworks on this scale that really did rival something I might have seen it somewhere in the uh, Disney parks. And another cool thing that we saw along the way were projected images on the side of buildings. It was very Disney-like in the sense of when you look at Cinderella's castle these days and they project an image on there that brings something to life. Same kind of a thing was happening. They'd just pick a building and they'd have some random image. It could have been something that was related to the city or perhaps in the case of Montreal, it was related to the uh, Montreal Canadiens hockey team. They had some hockey shots that were up on the screen, but they were moving and it was really cool. And it, you know, took over the side of a building and it didn't matter how flat the building was and whether it was brickwork or whatever, it looked like it was a just projected image very much like you see on Cinderella's castle. And that was pretty cool. Now, Back to Montreal and sort of its, you know, some of the other influence. Back in 1967, there was a, a World's Fair that happened in Montreal. Montreal wanted to put itself on the map. And there's a kind of a long history here that Russia was originally going to host the World's Fair in 1967, but they had to back out for financial reasons. So Montreal stepped up to the plate and said, we'll do it. 
And in about two and a half years, they were able to pull off creating everything they needed for a World's Fair. So it was the 1967 exposition, and they called it the Expo 67. And it happened to be at Canada's 100th anniversary of this unification. So, and, uh, you know, another milestone in their history. So Canada and Montreal decided that they would take this on. And the person who was assigned as, quote unquote, the mayor of the expo was responsible for its design and construction. And he really had no idea where to start. So what was his first deal? He called up Walt Disney, went to Anaheim, and talked to Walt Disney himself about the possibility of constructing something like this and what would it take, and learned some great ideas and techniques from Disney about how to create this. And Disney provided some influence and a few uh, ideas, and I think they even sent some people to kind of help oversee some of the project work a little bit, but really Montreal did it all on their own, but they had the influence of Disney kind of working with them. And what they did was nothing short of amazing. They actually created two new islands just off of Montreal. They actually excavated out some sand and soil, built it up, and created two islands. They put in 90 pavilions, and uh, they put together an amazing world showcase. At that point in time, it was called the greatest World's Fair that had ever existed. So it's a remarkable thing that they were able to do it and put it together like that. And among all the things they had there were some pretty cool things. There was one that was a biodome, and it was actually created by R. Buckminster Fuller, and it was a half of a geodesic sphere, and it was covered, it was, it was a metal frame, and it had some plastic sheeting that went over it. And this looks, if you look at the pictures of it then or now, because it still exists, it looks very much like half of uh, Spaceship Earth and Epcot. Pretty amazing. So they put together this World Showcase exposition, and they actually came together with a number of ideas. So there was the future world type of things where they were talking about technology of the future. And there was a World Showcase where there were many nations that were represented through their culture, through their uh, industry, through their buildings. And remarkable thing, they had a, a sort of a monorail. It was a hybrid of a monorail and people mover that moved around the outside of it. And it uh, gave you the view, the perspective of everything that was there. So if you look at the connection and the relationship to Disney, you realize that in 1966, Walt Disney died. This opened in 1967. So Walt Disney had talked to them about the design and construction and had sent some people to kind of help out and oversee some of the construction techniques. But Walt died before it actually came to fruition. But Disney was smart and sent a bunch of people there to explore and engage and learn. And that became sort of the foundation, very heavily influencing what Epcot became. Because if you look at what it was, how it was laid out, even some of the styles and designs, you see a lot of the influences in Epcot. It's got the World Showcase. It's got the Future World. It's got the monorail that runs through it. It's got, instead of a half of a geodesic dome, it's got a full sphere. And it's a remarkable thing what they were able to do that Disney was able to capture a lot of this and make it work. Now, one other thing that Disney had, Disney was actually asked to create one exhibit for the World's Fair. And that one exhibit happened to be a circle vision show for the Canada Pavilion at Expo 67. So this uh, 360 view show was based on the 360 technology, the circle vision that they had come up with. And they were using that as the way to express what Canada was all about. So that was actually the first Canada show that they created. Then they created the one for Epcot. So you can kind of see how the connection builds up, right? You, you see how these things tie back together. And there was really this strong connection between Disney and uh, this Expo 67. 
And uh, it, was a, it was another one of those pavilions that was well attended and people liked and they really enjoyed it. So when Disney was creating Epcot and they decided on the Canada Pavilion to be there, they wanted to represent what they saw in Expo 67 and actually kind of draw in the same idea by creating a Circle Vision movie. Now, the movie they created for Epcot was completely different. The one that was at Expo 67 was lost to history, basically. I can't find a link to it anywhere. People kind of have vague recollections of it, but it represented the country of Canada. So essentially it did the same thing that the one at, uh, Disney, at Disney World does. Kind of interesting. So when you look at it, you realize there was just so much happening there. There were so many interesting things and so much that Disney was influenced by. And there was one other thing that came out of this, and that was the very simple fact that the mayor of Expo 67 had to come up with a way to keep track of all these projects in two and a half years to make sure they all got done on time. Project management was already something that was existed, but he came up with some very specific techniques within project management to make sure that things were met on certain timelines, you know, having certain goals and deliverables and doing things to make sure that things happen. So he created this technique, he and several people that worked for him created some techniques to actually make project management simpler in that sense and to be able to keep track of these things. And Disney leveraged that when they started building Disney World in Florida. When the Magic Kingdom was being built, they had to have that same sort of timeline and structure and rigor around what they were doing to make sure that they met their timelines. So same, they, they leveraged the techniques that were being used there. So there's so much connection in history and so many things that are just tied together. Uh, I'm going to post some pictures in my show notes page of what Expo 67 looked like, and you'll get a sense of just how much it looks like Disney World. Epcot Center, excuse me. So you'll see how it kind of all fits together. It really does capture the imagination to a large degree. And I think when Walt Disney died, uh, Disney was trying to figure out how they were going to make something that was like Epcot, because I think that was always on the table. It was just a question of how would they do something like that. And once they discovered, once they leveraged this, I think it made it much easier to kind of think through the process. Yeah, everybody had their own opinions, but here was the overriding design that they wanted to come up with. It was sort of a world showcase. It was sort of the World's Fair. And that one was an extremely popular World's Fair. It was 50 million people had gone to it over the course of the five months it was open. And that's a remarkable thing. That's more people than live in Canada had gone to the World's Fair. So you think about just how well attended it was and how many people went through there and how successful it was. It's no wonder Disney sort of duplicated it to a large degree. So when you look at Epcot Center, Think of Expo 67. And I'd like to give a shout out to the McCord Museum because they had a lot of information available that uh, kind of demonstrated what it was all about and kind of shared information about how the World's Fair came together. So the McCord Museum is in uh, Montreal and it's a really interesting place. And I happened to be lucky enough to be there when they had an exhibit on display about Expo 67 because it was 50 years before. Kind of cool. And uh, it worked out pretty well. So the thing is that this put Montreal on the map and really opened up Canada a lot more for interest from people coming there and wanting to visit. And Montreal is just an amazing city, and I absolutely want to go back. It was so much fun. Uh, but you know, the thing is that there's the downside that comes with this, too. They had had so much success that when it came time to bid for the Olympics, they decided in, 19, in the early 1970s that they would bid for the 1976 Olympics to be in uh, Montreal. And... They made the bid, they were successful, they built all these different things and got ready for the Olympics, and it bankrupted the city. It absolutely destroyed them. They had had so much success with Expo 67, but the scale of the Olympics and the number of things that were needed to keep the Olympics running and you know infrastructure and getting people there 
killed it off. And it's unfortunate that it didn't work out so well, that it uh, ended poorly for them, and it, it destroyed the city for some period of time that they were so far behind. They were able to reuse the one of the venues is actually um, currently in use as sort of a uh, zoo of sorts. It's the old velodrome. It's not the greatest zoo, but it's clever the way they reused it. The stadium that's next door uh, to the velodrome, the main stadium that they used, uh, that one was actually used for uh, the baseball team, the Montreal Expos that were there until 2000 and I think it was eight when they uh, packed up and moved to Washington, D.C. They were contracted and there was a new team that was made in D.C. So, but they're still looking to potentially get a team back there and they use the stadium for various things. But it's an interesting thing, right? So, and that's why the expos were called the expos, by the way, because it ties all back to this whole thing. Um, even though it was, even though it was the Olympics, it ties back to the uh, the exposition in '67. So, kind of an interesting twist there. So, you you think about all the things that happened, and it's unfortunate that you know the city really had some trouble recovering from the '76 Olympics. It took them the better part of 25 years to kind of get back on their feet and you know recover financially and get things going again. But they're a vibrant city again, and it's absolutely worth worth going to. And they have all these different festivals and things going on throughout the course of a year, including the Jazz Festival, which was an amazing thing to see. That was just so much fun. I mean, it was it was just a great experience. And uh, I highly recommend visiting there sometime. And, uh, you know, Quebec City had a music fest as well, and we got to see part of that. And that was just also incredible. Just a, you know, great, great time. You know, what a, what a great adventure. And like I said, it ties back to Disney in so many ways that there was just this really interesting richness to everything that was happening there. And it was well worth spending the time and talking about. And I just wanted to share that with you because it was so much of a connection there between what I saw at it throughout Canada and uh, what you see at, uh, at Disney World. And there's such a tight tie there, especially to that Expo 67, that it's absolutely worth talking about. And one other thing, Montreal has a metro, it's a subway basically, that runs more like the Paris subway. Uh, so it's uh, rubber wheels in the tunnels rather than being steel wheels on a, on a track. And there's reasons that they chose to do that. But the main reason that they built this metro was to get people to the expo, Expo 67. They had sort of a, you know, a couple of stations that they had built and they were building it up, but they, got, they, got the, they decided that they needed to make sure that people could stay somewhere and get among the city and get out to these two outer islands to be able to visit the expo. So they actually built most of the metro based on that. So they got something really cool out of it, and it's a pretty cool subway system. It's, it's like something like the third most traveled subway system in the world or something like that. So it's, it's just a remarkable thing that they were able to build one more thing. And it's, you know, it's a fairly modern subway system. You know, unlike uh, where you, know, you have subway systems in other cities that are actually fairly old. You know, the ones in New York City, the ones in Paris, they're fairly old systems. Uh, they were, you know, while they, the trains are new and some of the, you know, some of the tracks are new and so forth, the systems themselves are fairly old. This was built in the 1960s. I mean, you know, you're only talking a little over 50 years old. So relatively new on the scale of things, and they were able to you know, make this happen. And it's pretty cool. It's, it's a pretty efficient system. It's very nicely run. Everything's great. So really pretty neat um, all the way around. And uh, I just wanted to share that with you as sort of my summer vacation, but how it ties to Disney. So I hope you enjoyed sort of this discussion of fun things that you can do where you always tie it back to Disney. I always find a way to tie things back. And my kids were having the best time just talking about how things tied back to Disney. And we just had this really fun adventure. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed hearing about it. 
On my next podcast, I'll talk more about some of the things that are happening around Disney uh, in particular. Uh, I know there was a lot of announcements made at D23, and I'll be talking about those in the near future. But that's it for now, and remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 